it is 100% up to me now. Like there's no more excuses. There's no obligations. I have a plan and it's either going to work or it's not, but like, it's not up to anyone else. It's only on me. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. You know, it's funny, like we've been doing this like almost 500 episodes and I still have a hard time figuring out how to start. I know, you're like, you're ready? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm ready. And then you're like, you're ready? And then I just put down the microphone. I was like, let me know when you're ready, man. I, I remember the first time we did the podcast together. I had to remember it the other day. Do you remember it? I remember it because I'm talking about it right now, actually with Jane, because we're working on a special episode. It's interesting. At the end of one of the early episodes, we were like, our goal with this podcast is to pull together like the premier community of people like building these legit style of businesses. Crazy, right? Like 10 years ago, we were like, this has got to happen because we cannot be sitting here being the only people we know that are doing this. And I think that was pretty much true at the time. And we might've known, I think less than a handful of people we had ever met that were doing this, like the topic of this podcast. It's crazy. What are we going to wish into the microphone tonight? <laughs> <laughs> Let's think about that. Put that on hold. Ian, today we are introducing a follow-up to one of the most popular episodes in recent years on this pod. We got so much great feedback from today's guest's first episode, which was called The Saturday Morning Side Hustle. And the theme of it was, you know, what if you do have a job? Is it possible to wake up early on Saturday morning and to build your dream? And in today's follow-up, we are going to see the progression of that entrepreneur. Not only did they build that dream, quit their job, start to travel the world, but now they're turning into a CEO, like making that next evolution and growing their vision. It's pretty awesome to see and pretty hilarious to boot. So Ian, Tommy first came on the show two and a half years ago to talk about a Saturday morning side hustle, click-minded an online SEO training course that he started while he was on the staff at PayPal. And we'll link to that episode in the show notes. By 2017, when we last talked, he was about to quit one of the best jobs in the world. That's right. He was the head of SEO at Airbnb based in San Francisco. And I think everybody on this show, boss man, you're, you're an Airbnb power user. Like if Tommy would have called you and said, I'm quitting Airbnb, you would have been like, dude, you cannot. Don't do it. How am I going to get my discounts? <laughs> but he was about to give up all that to travel more and focus full time on the side hustle called Click Minded. But it didn't go quite as planned as he recently laid out in the searingly open, honest, and super funny blog post called Burning the Boats, going all in on a side project. I laughed so hard I just had to call Tommy up and hear the story firsthand. So coming up, you're going to hear what went wrong, why Tommy ended up in a really bad Airbnb apartment. Yes, you heard that right. <laughs> in Hamburg's red light district and about his decision almost eight years into growing his business to take on a co-founder, which I found really interesting 
and something we've rarely talked about on this show. So stick around for that bit of the conversation specifically. But first, I started out by asking Tommy about what prompted his decision to leave Airbnb and focus on ClickMinded when he did. The business became higher than my salary in the third year. The calculation was never like, I have enough to go now. I had enough probably before then, but there was just other things going on in my life that I sort of wanted to check off. The job was actually what kept me there longer. I was over San Francisco long before I left. I don't want to throw the whole city in the garbage, but I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was very over it. But it was actually my job and friends that, that kept me there. There was stock stuff. Once a bunch of projects had finished and kind of the new year came, I had also just turned 30. Maybe that was some weird psychological thing where I was like, all right, pal, what do you, what's, what's the plan here? And that's actually really funny. My parents are like the nicest, most supportive people ever. But when I called them about this one, right, had a good job in San Francisco doing all this stuff. And I'm like, hey, I'm going to go full time on my side project and travel for a year or two. And it was quiet on the phone. And then my dad's like, son, <laughs> you're about to turn 31. What's the plan? <laughs> In hindsight, yeah, it probably looked a little crazy. Is there anything you regret about or miss about working at Airbnb? I mean, in terms of a job, I couldn't really ask for more. And yeah, it's really cool to, and you know, my previous job was like this as well, but it's cool to work on stuff. It was one of the largest, largest websites in the world. So when you make changes, you really can't see an impact, right? So that kind of stuff I won't be able to do again. And I do miss that stuff for sure. The other thing too, is just being around the most impressive people possible, right? Like so many people, you know, are data scientists, like a master's degree in math and a PhD in physics from MIT, right? Like one of the guys who worked on the internationalization part of the site was a three-time world Scrabble champion. That will never be replicated in my life. I do miss that stuff. But net, like I much prefer working my, on my own business, right? Relative to having the job and sort of being obligated to the calendar. You know what I mean? Yeah. How did it feel that those first few weeks when it was just you? Oh my God. I mean, and I've seen other people write about this. It is so funny how much of your like resting, like idle time is consumed by work. I'm meeting with whoever next week and the thing I got to do by, by the weekend. And like all this stuff just like sits in your brain and you like artificially think it's important. And then like the minute you leave, you're like, Oh my God. Like, 10 pound weight off your shoulders is an understatement. It's just like all this. It's not necessarily that you have, that you have like a, a free and clear schedule. It's more that you realize you were being consumed by unbelievably pointless stuff. That has nothing to do with Airbnb. It's just the nature of, you know, a 2000 person company. It's just the human jigsaw puzzle of meetings and PowerPoints and deliverables and budgets and KPIs and making the shareholders happy. Once it was gone, it was just like, wait a minute, like it's all on me now. Like that's actually what I loved is like, it is 100% up to me now. Like there's no more excuses. There's no obligations. Like I have a plan and 
it's either going to work or it's not. But like, it's not up to anyone else. It's only on me. And that was the part that really got me fired up. I mean, a lot of people, they're planning on this day to come around. How does it feel that first week when you're open up your laptop and you're like, all right, like, what am I going to do? I talked a little bit about this in the post, but I really did myself a huge disservice by sort of setting up my departure mentally way too long, right? Like my planning and strategizing for what I was going to do next, it sort of put me in this position where the expectations I set for myself were way too high. Like I started dreaming, man, and I was dreaming a lot. Like, you know, I'm going to go to Bali. Bali's going to be amazing. Like I'm going to take down grad school. I'm going to meet the coolest people. Like and when you say I'm going to take down grad school, you mean that click-minded will replace a traditional education. Clickminded.com will replace the multi-billion dollar graduate school market. That was <laughs> <laughs> And it's got to be done by the end of the year, Dan. That was my <laughs> There were two things going on. One was I spent way too long like planning my escape. And that whole process actually became addictive, right? Like I loved, you know, sitting down and like, and I was listening to <laughs> listening to your podcast a lot, but working on my business, figuring out where I was going to go and going through this act of like kind of scoffing at San Francisco and being like, I'm so excited to leave. And just every time I did that, like my expectations for what was going to happen kept going up and up and up and up. And managing those expectations is, is really, really important because my expectations were so high. The first six months of traveling around and moving to Bali and doing all this stuff, they were absolutely amazing. But my expectations were so much higher that it made me super grumpy initially. I was like, what do you <laughs> you know, like, what do you mean I'm running into problems? There's no, there should be no problems, right? Like I plan this out. So those are definitely some of the kind of initial fumbles that I had. Now, before Tommy headed to Bali, he decided on a growth strategy, which meant expanding his click-minded courses. And the figures that Tommy lays out in his blog post would indicate that that was a good idea. So just to give you the numbers, in 2016, ClickMinded made $160,000 in sales. In 2017, the year he left his job, that revenue figure jumped significantly to $312,000. In 2018, it hit $378,000, so a bit of a stall out in growth there, which we'll get into later in the show. And that brings us right up to date. So Tommy's estimate for this fiscal year is $490,000. So let's focus first on that almost doubling of revenue between 2016 and 2017. Yeah, so by the way, you you reading back my revenue numbers is like the most terrifying possible thing I could ever hear. I feel naked. <laughs> that was the dice roll moment. Like, will this work or not? And it worked. Yeah, so I left Airbnb, went back home, hung out with friends for a little bit, and initially flew to Germany. I had a, a guy who had helped me film the original course in San Francisco. He had moved back to, to Hamburg, Germany. And I told him the plan and he said, I'd love to help, but I'm in Hamburg. So if you want me to help, you got to come here. And so rolled into Hamburg. I actually, I booked an Airbnb at the last minute and I accidentally said, no one believes me when I said this. I accidentally booked it right in the middle of like the red light district in Hamburg. And <laughs> you know, Airbnb is amazing. Most Airbnbs are amazing. <laughs> I got to appease my corporate overlords on this one but the one i was in was so gross like it was so bad 
but I was still so excited. Like it didn't matter, you know, I'm like, yes, I made it. Right. <laughs> and yeah, the basic plan is like, okay, I have this SEO course, you know, I used it to train up my own teams at PayPal and Airbnb. I want to go full time on it. And the plan was to expand it to a comprehensive digital marketing course. So, so seven to nine topics go head to head with, you know, these digital marketing boot camps and universities and all these other people. And so went to Hamburg and started to plan out the next phase of the product, basically expanding from a, it's a digital product, but still basically expanding the number of SKUs of SKUs from one to, to seven single-handedly, which was a lot. The first SKU took like four years to gestate. And the next one I wanted to create in two, the next seven I wanted to create in two weeks. Basically got a bunch of coffee and study drugs and like pounded, <laughs> like just pounded Adderall and, and took like online courses at, at 1.5 X speed and read blog posts and tried out tools and basically tried to make a V1 of like this really comprehensive set of, uh, of digital marketing courses. So your strategic thesis coming out of and having all this extra free time was essentially the path to growing click-minded is to increase the product line. Yes. But the other part was just like the ident- like identifying the market. I had so much familiarity with the space. The more meta need is that digital marketing is a thing and there's the, the formal training for it out there is really, really bad, right? The vast majority of digital marketers, they get into it in one of two ways, right? They fall ass backwards into it because of a side project they started on their own. Like I have this product, how do I get to the top of Google, right? Or their boss asked them to do it, right? Like, we're doing this thing. I know we brought you on to do this type of marketing, but can you go look into that type of marketing, right? The problem is like, this was the same calculation I made 10 years ago when I got into SEO. I did my first product. I got it ranking number one. And I asked myself a very simple question. Are people going to be Googling stuff more or less 10 years from now, right? In 2008, it's just like the easiest call in the world. Yes, right? And here we are 10 years later, of course that was right. Now there's another question. Is the world gonna need more digital marketing 10 years from now? Yes or no? It's the easiest call in the world, right? <laughs> yes. But here's the problem, right? Like the apprenticeship model is probably still the best way to go at this time. But right now, there's more than 50 universities in the United States that offer a master's degree in digital marketing. They range from 40 to $90,000 a year. And they are garbage. Do I sound passionate about this? They, the instructors are all, you know, I, I don't want to be ageist, but the instructors are all thousand years old. They use physical textbooks, like physical textbooks. I can't even keep my blog posts updated, right? <laughs> and these universities, they're lending their brand to these digital marketing degrees and they're charging dumb kids $50,000 for a completely useless degree. So the idea is, People are going to need to learn digital marketing. We should expand this. And that was sort of the, that's been the hypothesis to date. You point out a lot of challenges to this though. I mean, aside from the travel thing, you do a really cool comparison that's funny, but illuminating too. Something I speak a lot about with entrepreneurs is you uh, compared yourself with a Panda Express restaurant manager, which is a fast food Chinese takeout company in, in America. And you're basically like, man, I... I'm kind of trending along with the restaurant manager. What inspired you to do this comparison and, and what, what's illuminating about it to you? Yeah, in another life, I would have managed a Panda Express for sure. <laughs> no, I just actually it was funny. I was walking past the Panda Express 
And I saw in the window, like now hiring managers paying $65,000 a year. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like I have to grind out every dollar I earn and these guys are making a cool 65. And so I like looked at the numbers and it was true. It is so much easier to manage a Panda Express than start your own business. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> I know you guys are, are probably thinking about this stuff a lot now with, with Dynamite Jobs. Ian, while I got you roped into the office here, on the script it says, cut in with a quick reminder of what Dynamite Jobs is about. But I'll give you a minute. 60 seconds. We've already been talking 10. Let's go. <laughs> 50, yeah, yeah, we're down to 48. Down to my jobs. It's what we've been doing all week, man. And I think Tommy's right. The biggest opportunity is for people to change their lives, not necessarily for people to become entrepreneurs. Something we've talked about on the show for several years now is like entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs. But one of the things that we've realized of the last couple of years through this podcast is that there's a lot of people that just don't want to become entrepreneurs, but they do want to change their lives. There is this churn and turnover that I think Tommy's pointing to that doesn't show up on shows like this, which is so much of the reason we wanted to start like this service that helps people find great jobs that we realized that the answer, hey, if you want these sorts of things in your life, become an entrepreneur, that answer wasn't satisfying to the vast majority of people. Because it's like the hardest thing you can do, but it's much easier to get a job, right? Especially if you're working for an entrepreneur and you're able to travel and do all these cool things. And what's things. better is if you want to become an entrepreneur, the best thing to do is like get an entrepreneurial job. So that's Dynamite Jobs. I'm glad we cut in to do this. All right. We definitely over. And we're over. <laughs> the juice is not always worth the squeeze. There's such a survivorship bias with this stuff. The only people that post blog posts are the ones that make it. And the vast majority of the time, it's a really risky move. It took me three years to net more in revenue on my business than it would have getting a job managing a Panda Express in Southern California at $65,000 a year. And yeah, the point is, it's just not a lock. Like It just feels like a lock because everyone's just always tweeting and blogging about them exiting and how much money they've gotten and how much venture capital money they've raised. The hardest part about starting an online business is getting someone to pay you. <laughs> like, it sounds like the simplest, dumbest, most obvious thing, but it is so hard to get someone to pay you. And people don't really understand that. And I, I think that the stuff you guys are doing with Dynamite Jobs will be very interesting, especially for people who in on their checklist, on their like life priority checklist, if like freedom and travel is higher than the money and sometimes even sometimes even the money is better with the remote job because there's less risk but like if freedom and travel stuff is sort of higher on your to-do list it is so much easier to work for an awesome company you love that you believe in that lets you work remotely right and that was just sort of the contrast that i was trying to draw with <laughs> with the band express thing was that even though i felt like i was succeeding you know, I looked at it over a three-year timeline and like a normal standard job that doesn't even require a college degree would have made more revenue than me even after three years of quote-unquote making it. When you have a career, sometimes you can be blinded to the forces around you that the company is dealing with on your behalf. So you've coined a term, a technical term called overhyped head. <laughs> According to Tommy, an overhyped shithead is somebody who's presenting themselves as an expert in order to sell things, but actually their knowledge 
has regressed. Can you talk a little bit about this in your context? How did you become an overhyped shithead? It's a, it's a very technical term. When you work in Silicon Valley companies, this is probably relevant to other industries as well, but I don't have the experience. The funniest way to figure out whether or not you're an overhyped shithead is when you go to these conferences, right? If you go to conferences and you have the badge and, you know, for six years, once or twice a year, I would go to, you know, some internet marketing conference or wherever it was, and it says Tommy Griffith PayPal or Tommy Griffith Airbnb. And all of a sudden, everybody loves you and you're the coolest guy in the school. And you're like, you didn't deserve any of it, but you're just, you take the brand and people assume everything they've heard about the brand, they've heard it before. PayPal might not be as good of an example because... A lot of people don't like PayPal, but like, you know, if people hear about the brand and they sort of falsely give you this credibility, right? So for six years, I walked around being like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm the man. I'm kind of the man. And, and the reality is the vast majority of the stuff I was working on was stuff that's very specific to the company, right? So, you know, talking to the designers about why that particular change won't work for that particular type of product or talking to these people about budget stuff or just like very internal politics stuff. But when you go out in the real world, and for me, that was sitting in a tiny, dimly lit co-working space in Hamburg, Germany, cracked out on Adderall and, and like creating the next version of my product, I'm looking at the universe and I'm like, wow, all these other people that I've never heard of are like way better at this than me. You know, it's the skin in the game kind of stuff. Like they have to make it work. And I got to sit back and coast on these big monolithic brands for a while. And I suddenly realized, oh my God, I'm an overhyped shithead. <laughs> like I have to do a lot of work to get back. And so I think it's reasonable to look at people who are using a different company's sort of brand as their thing, to look at it very skeptically. You mentioned that this cracked out binge work fest was probably the least healthy, most rewarding thing you've ever done. I think a lot of people can relate to that. Going to business isn't healthy all the time, I don't think. It's not. And the worst part is the more unbalanced and unhealthy I was, the, the faster the business grew. Right? <laughs> so <laughs> like I have all my friends that are like, you know, they do a little bit of yoga and they do, you know, and they get a coffee and they like to hang out with their family and they would never succeed at this stuff. You have to be so extreme. Like I redlined pretty much every category in my life. I hate to say this, <laughs> this is probably terrible advice is gonna put someone in the hospital, but it worked. <laughs> like I went all in, was working way too hard, using a bunch of study drugs and coffee and forsaking my social life for a while. And it got me to the next stage. This week's show is sponsored by, wait for it, the Dynamite Circle, or the DC. Yes, often mentioned on the show, but rarely explained. So give me a minute to walk through some of the highlights. The DC has been around for over eight years and is a private community for established entrepreneurs. There is an application process. It's not super intimidating, but we want to get entrepreneurs in there that are the right fit. And that's not because we're elitists. Or swanky. It's just to make sure that every member has skin in the game because first and foremost, the DC is a community of peers. So unfortunately, it's not for beginners, but that's why we built Dynamite Jobs. Head on over there if you're just getting started out. And if we feel your business wouldn't get a lot of value out of being a part of the DC, we'll let you know 
up front. So here's the thing. We just opened up our ticket sales for DCBKK, our longstanding and I got to say pretty awesome event at a five-star hotel in Bangkok, Thailand. So if you were thinking about joining the DC and want an excuse to hang out in Bangkok with over 300 amazing entrepreneurs, head on over to the application form at tropicalmba.com slash DC to learn more because this will quite literally be a red carpet entry into the community. So what else is in it for you? We can place you in carefully matched online masterminds. You'll have access to free bespoke recruitment services via Dynamite Jobs, and you can seek and share advice in our private business forum. You'll also be able to buy tickets for our amazing aforementioned in-person events like DCBKK and in cities all around the world. But most of all, you'll be a part of people who really get the challenges that you're facing on a day-to-day basis. At our parties, you won't be facing very many confused looks about what it is you've decided to do with your life. So stop growing your business alone. If you're curious about the DC and about the types of people we're dedicated to pulling together, head on over to tropicalmba.com slash DC. Tommy, a lot of people, they get stalled out where you were starting this journey, the journey we're talking about today. So many people, once they get to the point where they have the freedom, the flexibility, and the money, businesses stall out at around you know six figures of personal income or maybe like six figures in sales and like a good income for the founder. I think it's one of the things that's not talked about very often is that like to get to that next level, like you can put out a product, do some marketing, do some SEO, and boom, you got an income in three years. But very few people then are able to take it to the next level where like people are working for you and it's running something by yourself versus having a team. So to be honest, and this is sort of the next phase of the story, I don't know if I would have been able to get to the next level without my now co-founder, Eduardo. I think the business was, I think I was 100% on track for something slightly over six figures, personally great, but never any larger because I didn't or don't have the skill set. I wasn't good enough. And uh, bringing Eduardo on was the game changer. What is that skill set? Vision for the next phase of it on a a deeper level understanding of the technical stuff we could do to optimize things, a different set of eyes looking at it. And I don't mean like a consultant you hire for five hours. I mean, someone pouring 50 hours of their life a week for two years into it. That sort of trade-off was just immeasurably helpful. Like the things where we are now, it's so laughable to think I could have gotten here on my own without my co-founder. How did you know you needed a partner? Do you ever play that super punch out game when you're like on the ropes and like <laughs> about to die? I was at that point, like I plowed a bunch of money into filming the next version of it. Everything was moving so terribly and so slowly. And I was just very, very rattled and didn't see a way forward. And then sent a Hail Mary email to my now co-founder and saying, hey, man, here's the situation. What do you think? Walk me through this, Tommy, and I'll set the framework here, is that it's a very rare thing to do, what you did, to bring on a partner in the middle of like a otherwise successful lifestyle business. This feels very risky to me. That's a really good point. And this kind of stuff has happened to me throughout the duration of this business where 
Actually, every single person I asked for advice on this told me not to do it. It's the funniest thing because this has also gone over to other phases of my life as well. When I first started my business, I did it through revenue shares. I would latch onto other co-working spaces or AppSumo and Noah Kagan's email marketing newsletter and a bunch of other sort of people where they take a really big cut in order to push you out to their audience. Every single time people get really caught up in the numbers and in the like sort of how much you're giving away. And to me, it was so obvious that I needed a co-founder and to everyone else, it was like exactly what you just said, which is you spent four years of your life on this. You got it to this point. Why would you ever give away such a big piece of it? And I just could not see a way forward. In hindsight, it's easy to look back now and say it was the right move. It absolutely was the right move from a business perspective, but it's also been a lot more fun. Like having someone in the trenches with you, rolling around in the mud with them and going through the awfulness and going through the highs has been great as well. It just simply wouldn't have moved forward if I hadn't brought him on board. One of the parts of the next phase, Tommy, was investing $60,000 in like furthering your vision, it seems, to start with relationships and to partner with expert, because you've been the expert typically, and that ostensibly keeps your costs low. So your last product launch was like 15,000 bucks. You can stomach that. Now you guys are going to invest 60,000 bucks? What inspired this line of thinking? Yeah, so this also gets back to me realizing I was an overhyped shithead. So <laughs> it's like, so yes, invested $15,000 to sort of refilm, recreate, and rebrand the course, the SEO course. We did that and then relaunched it and made in about a week 50 or so thousand dollars. And then the next phase was to plow every single dime we had there back into the business. And the basic idea was like, I set out thinking I could teach all of these courses on my own. I learned it all, I laid out these curriculums, I started to create video content for all of them. And the reality was it was incredibly mediocre. So the idea is like, okay, now I gotta push more chips to other players, right, and find other awesome people that that do this. And I'm really, really proud of sort of how we we did that, right? So the former head of social media from Airbnb teaches our social media course. The former content marketing strategist from Lyft teaches the content marketing course. We really went big with this. And the idea is finding these people, rounding them up, getting them to teach in sort of the click-minded style, which is like fun, energetic, technical, with world-class experts that do this stuff every day. At first, I was like, okay, I can do this on my own. I'm the man. I'm the coolest guy you've ever met. And then I, when I actually went to do it, I was like, oh my God, this product is so horrible. I have no idea what I'm doing. I need a co-founder and nine other teachers. Like, It was kind of my own incompetence that drove us to like expand the product. And you mentioned that even after getting the experts involved and the co-founder and the 60 grand, it was a total disaster. Yes. Well, so... <laughs> yes. Turns out, like a lot of entrepreneurship, you're just in the business of, of getting your ass kicked. The way it worked is, yeah, we decided to pivot, right? We decided to say, okay, we're going to go to all these, create all these courses, we, and we wanted to take a totally different angle from other companies, which is there's a lot of digital marketing media out there that we were very frustrated by. Eduardo specifically was very frustrated by. If you follow a lot of these blogs, I don't want to mention any by name, but like they post 10 times a day about different things. And it's all like, it's actually very interesting. Do you ever read Trust Me Online, Ryan Holiday's book? Yes. 
like that kind of stuff is is pervasive in the internet marketing industry as well. Like everything is designed to like bubble up this anxiety and like get you to click and make you think like you're missing something, right? Like certain blogs, they're they're posting three times a week about how to increase your Twitter followers. Like you do not need this stuff, right? We got really annoyed with this. And so the angle we wanted to take is really comprehensive digital marketing tutorials that help you grow your business. And so when we went out and did that, that was our pitch. We found these really incredible instructors. We locked them down and, and sort of agreed to terms and we started getting them going. And then we went to out into our audience and we, we pre-sold it. We did the classic like Kickstarter style. This is where we're gonna pivot to. This is what we're gonna do. We're taking a risk here. Do you want in or not? You know, give everyone a discount for enrolling. And it was incredible, right? So like the bet worked. We made $113,000 in, in seven days. That was the moment where Eduardo was like, okay, I'm all in now and let's roll. Let's do this, right? From there, from that moment on, from those very euphoric highs, everything went to shit. How did you go from pre-selling a course for six figures to losing money? I'm a real genius, Dan. <laughs> I'm the smartest guy I know. So once we pre-sold it, it was like, oh, okay, we got <laughs> we gotta do this now, right? Like. People believed in the vision, like people are all in and they trust us. We got to make this awesome. You know, we had to hire five people. We had to create this brand new product that we'd hyped up. We had to get all the other instructors courses finished. We had problems with two instructors, right? That we couldn't work with anymore that we had to replace like every single possible behind the scenes product that I didn't actually even mention in that post. Every possible problem you could think of happened. And then once we launched, we kind of went out to the next phase of marketing and just every hypothesis we had was wrong, right? Like there were problems with the courses. We tried to, to sell it in a, on like a long-term webinar summit and it didn't work. We made a bunch of structural changes to the site. There were a lot of growing pains and we started losing traffic. My overhead was like three times higher. Expenses were way up, revenue was way down and the business was just on track to fail. And one of the interesting things you point out, you have a clever term for it. You said, uh, taking vitamins while bleeding, that now you got this new co-founder involved. He's expensive. You lost this money. And now all of a sudden, this guy disagrees with you on what you should be doing. Eduardo's coming with a different vision for how you should respond to the challenges. In hindsight, it's easier to point this out in hindsight, but the big good call that we made was like, Eduardo is more, so I have certain stuff I'm good at, right? I'm like, I'm sort of the face. I'm sort of the media guy. I do a lot of our webinars, webinars and our content. I'm like, I'm the monkey they bring out on stage to dance for everyone, right? That's the stuff that I do, but I'm, I'm more of a specialist, right? I have this one sort of vertical I've been working on with for 10 years, which is SEO, but Eduardo's just really good at everything. And he's, but he's also our customer avatar. He is the guy that we're selling to, right? Like he's the guy that's very annoyed with the digital marketing media industry. He's the guy who really wants the comprehensive tutorials. He's the guy who will like, you know, roll his eyes when certain people in the industry are posting another reason for why you should increase your Twitter followers, right? Like, and so when you have a guy who is your avatar, like to a T in the trenches with you, nine times out of 10, you're better off getting out of his way. Right. And I will say, although this whole episode is probably going to be mostly about like throwing myself under the bus and talking about what a dummy I was. I think the one thing I was really good at was finding really, really smart people and just getting out of their way. 
and that's what it was with Eduardo. You know, he said, hey, look, like we're going to create a bunch of this really comprehensive digital marketing content, but we can lay this out for users at the right place and the right time and set up a lot of automations that make it really, really helpful. We need to do this. And all the stuff I wanted to do was like the super basic, like 101 stuff, right? Like make the button green instead of red, right? And like, <laughs> we got to say buy now instead of enroll now, right? Like pretty dumb stuff, but like, it's just more of the stuff that I'm sort of used to. And I guess for looking from the outside, you could say, okay, yeah, I founded the business. I spent four years on it and now I'm pushing a bunch of chips over to his corner and letting him wrestle the roadmap away from me. But I will say, I guess I was, yeah, I guess I was humble enough to realize he was a better fit to, to lead the charge. And I know that's kind of a faux pas in the entrepreneurship world is that the, the founder's supposed to lead the way, right? But that wasn't the case with us. You said we ended up fixing the business in the most boring and unsexy way possible. And you called yourself cockroaches. I was joking with a buddy of mine, like, you know, that, do you ever see the social network, the Facebook movie? Yeah. Oh, I love that movie. The dude playing Mark Zuckerberg, he like suddenly comes to this epiphany that he sees someone like dating someone else and he runs back to his dorm room and he adds the inner relationship button to Facebook and it's this like turning point in the business or something like that, right? Like you always think it's going to be like that, some dramatic moment, right, where something happens and it's just never true. Like the way we fixed the business was so boring. We set up Google Sheets, we listed out in a spreadsheet, everything we thought that we needed to do to increase revenue, everything we thought that was hurting revenue, we prioritized them and we just hammered them one by one by one by one. Like, you know how you say, like, I've heard you say this multiple times, people come to you and they say, I want to create a digital nomad documentary. And you always reply with no, because that would be the most boring thing possible. Like, you are 100% right. Like, the, the business was fixed because we quietly worked in Google Sheets for four months. Like, where, where's that scene in the documentary? You know? like, <laughs> it was so boring. We just sort of organized everything. Eduardo went on his rampage of, of automating everything, and we went line by line, hammering everything one by one. The wind started to compound, and eventually the business took off. One of the things you mentioned that I thought was interesting through this journey is that you learned that a lot of entrepreneurs conflate their own self-worth with their business. Can you describe what you mean by that? When you just are working on this every day and you think about this stuff every day, you just have no choice but to be obsessed with it. And I would actually argue that you're much more likely to succeed if you're obsessed with it and you're obsessed kind of with yourself. But what I found, especially with people traveling around working on their businesses, first of all, I love people in this space that are working on their own thing, working on their own projects. I, they, they, they resonate with me a lot. Like I love talking with them about it. There's so many people who are not at all interested in starting a business. And when I would engage in these conversations with them and try to have objective, literal conversations about, you know, product market fit and revenue and hiring and all this stuff, the entire conversation would, would fall apart and it would sometimes get hostile. And, and, the, and I would accidentally be an asshole. And the reason why I think is because, you know, entrepreneurship is sexy now, startups are sexy now, and a lot of people want to do this stuff. But the vast majority of people I met, they're not actually interested in trying to start a business and capture market share and all these other things. They're trying to give more meaning to their life. They're trying to do something to, you know, impress their parents or impress their 
girlfriend or boyfriend or get back at their friends. Like these incredibly like emotional, weird human sort of things that are driving them. It's not about, you know, penetrating the market or like anything like that. That's a huge conflict when you go in and you're like trying to actually like talk about where they should price their product and they don't care at all. And so, yeah, I found like I personally was really into my own stuff, but whenever I would talk with other people, like I found that they weren't necessarily trying to create a massive business and, and sort of make it. I found that they were more interested in doing something that was meaningful to them and doing something that like they could be proud of. You mentioned that um, you've had to philosophically reinvent yourself through this period of focusing full-time on your business and scaling it up in a major way. Yeah, I listed out in the post like the, my kind of three like religious resources. The book Sapiens, Naval Ravikant's Twitter feed, and Rick and Morty, the TV show. All great sort of resources for figuring out why the hell we're here and what this is all all for. Why is that relevant to what you're doing with your business? Once you get to a certain point where you start to hit some of the goals you set, have you ever heard those tropes around like when people like people start to like age really fast or start to like die quicker once they retire? They start to fade way faster if they don't have have meaning. When you get a little bit of space, like when I first started the whole thing, you're so amped up that you don't even have time to think. But then once you get a little bit of room, and I, I mean, you know, you exited a business a couple of years ago. Maybe you had this moment. Once you get a, a little bit of room, you start to go in different directions of like, how much is enough? What am I going to do with it? Why am I here? Oh, my God, what is the meaning of life? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh, crap. <laughs> You're having to ask the existential questions. This is a great way to put it because the existential question is like, I'm making money on the internet in order to pay my rent and to have the lifestyle things that I need. Like that's a simple existential equation. But now when you have to convince other people to work on that vision's behalf and you have to work extra hard yourself and reinvent yourself to to work on behalf of that vision, the question very quickly becomes, what the hell am I doing here? You got it. (laughs) You got it, man. I also read, a tweet by Mark Manson the other day. I thought it was wonderful. hes I don't know if he's quoting somebody or whatever, but he said, the only reliable way to kill a dream is to achieve it. And I just thought, ooh, man, I wish I wrote that. Wow, that is heavy. And don't get me wrong, like, like I said in the post, you know, my business is not, there's plenty of entrepreneurs that are like, okay, your revenue is my property tax, right? Like, that's not like, generational wealth by any means but when you sit down and you you know you do a dreamline or something like that and you just list out what you're looking for if freedom is first second and third place which it was for me is off the top of your list and then you get it you you start to sort of look at yourself like okay well uh so guys what <laughs> what's next and i hate to get too emo and existential and weird about it but um I was really rattled, uh, especially in the first couple of years of doing this business, just sort of by other people's perceptions and, you know, some of the people I met in San Francisco and sort of what I was going to do next. And some of this more existential stuff that I've come across, especially Naval Ravikant stuff, just around the single player game, 
like he's got this this whole idea that we as humans are playing our lives like it, it's a multiplayer game. We're these social creatures, and everything we do is designed to sort of impress other people, right? Like I'm working out a lot, so I'm super strong, right? I'm making a bunch of money. I have a big house. Like that's external validation. And his point is life is a single player game. Like everyone's so busy caring about themselves that to be frank, they don't give a shit about you. And if you really dive into that, I think he's right. And the inevitable conclusion, the natural conclusion there is like, you really only are competing with yourself. And no one, you know, he said he ends that podcast episode where we talked about this he says you're born alone you're gonna die alone when i first heard that it was so depressing like so terrifying right but the other take on it is like you can do whatever you want there's a famous book on this topic called uh the myth of sisyphus and he lays out a very similar argument and says like look there's no meaning so you got two options Number one is to kill yourself. Let's take that option off the table for a hot minute and look at our other options. And it's funny because he actually has like these different lives that you could go live. Like one is to be an actor. He talks about like taking on different personas and one is to be like a Don Juan kind of romantic person who goes around and is the lover. And he lays out these different kind of ways to like basically say, if you can't hierarchically value experiences and if that's a myth then you just collect them like that's the response to that i don't necessarily think he's right but i think it's interesting stuff (laughs) i think definitely (laughs) i responded in my life by being a collector you know like life's meaningless what should i do let's not think about it let's get on another plane (laughs) (laughs) exactly i like that move i also have been playing that game it's been interesting too because i talk to a bunch of people who are very religious about this and getting their their take on it has been fascinating as well. So I don't want to like rattle too many people and, and rock too many boats on this. Like I'm not I'm not purporting I know what I'm talking about at all. It's just sort of sort of the conclusion I've come to after traveling around for the last two years. The cash of this philosophical transformation and the challenges you've taken in the last two years are that you've gone from dude who started a business, founder, side hustle Tommy to CEO Tommy. What's next for CEO Tommy? I have no idea. <laughs> like, I still view one giant injustice in the world, which is graduate school education. I have attempted three times to go after this thing. Uh, every single time has failed. It still makes me angry at random times in my life. I'll randomly wake up and be angry at grad school. <laughs> That's probably a diagnosable <laughs> problem. I'm not ready yet, but eventually, yeah, I have, and Eduardo as well, have this sort of non, like monetizable, non-revenue vision for, you know, sledgehammering this institution that needs to go away, throwing a rock through the damn window. And I don't know how, but that's at the back of my mind. Tommy Griffith, thank you so much for coming by and sharing your story. You got an open ticket. Come back on the show anytime and let us know how things are going. Appreciate it, my man. Thanks a lot.
Jacob. A big shout to Tommy for coming by the show. Ian, no joke, I, I just laughed my way through this article, even while horrible things were happening to Tommy, because I could relate to the struggle, the difficulty, the robberies, everything. Like it was so cool. And talking with Tommy, you know, I, I know you've spoken with Tommy on, on a few occasions and it like brightened my whole day. The guy's just a force of nature. He is a total force of nature. And you know what I want to hear about next time you interview Tommy, Dan, or next time we talk to Tommy, I want to talk about that day. Give us a call, Tommy. I want to talk about the day when Tommy was an adult and he decided not to drop the Y from Tom. Because <laughs> that day, I mean, that's a pivotal point in a man's life. And I've I've only met a very few adult males that go by anything with a Y on the end of their name. And I yeah. have massive respect for them because they're just taking their childhood and thrusting into adulthood and keeping it. I love it. You know, it's it's iconic. It's about branding. It is. And it makes me think of this. I was listening to a podcast interview with Sammy Hagar the other day, second Van Halen lead singer. And he talked about this like very methodically because the questioner, Lance Armstrong, asked him, hey, like I hang around with you in Austin. Everybody calls you Sam. Hmm. What's up with that? And he talked about how it was like this deliberate branding thing that there's just not that many Sammys out there. So Interesting. I had a buddy in college and his name was Tommy. And I just love saying the name. Like, hey, Tommy, <laughs> Tommy, what's up, man? Where you want to eat tonight, Tommy? How about we talk about business here? <laughs> so, Ian, do you have any parting shots, some takeaways besides, of course, big kudos? And while you think about that, the links to Tommy's wonderful article, resources to everything we mentioned in today's episode will be posted over at tropicalmba.com slash Tommy Griffith 2. Tommy's on about something that I've been on for a long time, but especially on this podcast, it feels like the last couple of episodes I've mentioned this, which is like, you have to fulfill other people's dreams before you fulfill your own. If that's the only thing I say all year, I just want to, I want to say it a hundred times. It's your pod. Say what you got to say. You have to make and create value for other people before you can get value yourself. And I think Tommy's on about that as well. And I think once you start to create value for other people, then you can take a little bit for yourself off the table. But then it's time to go create tons more value for everybody and then take a little bit off the table. Is You're giving a lot more than you're getting, or at least that's what it should feel like. It is a theme. What you just said, we talked about the six-figure slump a while ago. It's this idea of the enormity of getting your own personal freedom can be such a driving purpose that then when you get it, you realize that, well, I can't have that as my purpose anymore. So where, and my company can't have it as its purpose. So where is it going to come from? You got to generate it again. It's no surprise to me that this was the conversation we were having because we're at that moment when it's like, is this just going to be a great living or is this going to be a company that's a movement, that's a thing? And uh, it's going to be awesome to see uh, where Tommy takes it. The other thing that I'll say about that too, Dan, is like that existential crisis has existed for technology-based people, like developers basically for like the last 20 years because they're able to work autonomously. They're able to work basically on their own online somewhere from some deserted island. So like, I think they've been facing that crisis for like a long time, the six-figure sump specifically, right? And then like, there's this new class of entrepreneurs, this new class of internet marketers or whatever that's just starting to uh, you know establish that this is a real problem. So I think this problem's existed for a long time. 
Right, it's not just an entrepreneurial thing, right? Yeah, but that there aren't like more solutions for it, that more people aren't talking like about. Like you said, like don't meet your heroes, don't achieve your dreams. There's nothing good there for you. Nothing good. <laughs> hey, one other thing I wanted to mention about talking to Tommy that really struck me is my emotion when he told me the story of bringing on a co-founder. And I think this shows my limitations as a business person. I was just shocked. I just like was like, I'm just kind of uptight and conservative with that kind of stuff, you know? He really laid it out for me. He's like, he made this hard sell on partnerships and he wasn't only talking about business partnerships with like a co-founder. He was talking about partnerships with other companies, partnerships with other brands, partnerships with other teachers. That's probably the thing that I walked away from this conversation thinking like, not just patting each other on the back, not just hanging out, not just whatever, but like what are some real partnerships you can get involved in that could open up sort of the afterburners on your business. And I think that's what Tommy's done here. It's pretty cool. The old Adam Carolla adage, uh, rich man, poor man, like goes barefoot all day. It's a rich man thing, poor man thing. So people in the middle class would never do this. Also, I would say go fast on a bike. You either got to be rich or broke. The middle class right, people working cars, too hard to train enough. Uh, rich man, poor man thing. Partnerships. Like uh, you get together on the street corner and you like, you know, hustle some people at the stoplight for some change, especially if you're in Austin. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And you like pull together your cigarettes at the end of the day, and you're like, yeah. you you share more. Also, high level partnerships. Like, it's like at this real estate group the other day, and there was like five partners in it. It was like, yeah, that makes sense. It's to all me a that, handshake like, deal yeah. and millions of bucks. And, totally. Yeah, interesting. So it's like opposite ends of the spectrum. Big ups again to Tommy. That was a, a really fun conversation. We will be back, of course, next Thursday morning. 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.